0: Alright, so good to see you all folks. I uh, appreciate you coming out. Um, I'll try to keep everything engaging and also on time so that way I don't interfere with lunch. Um, thank you for that introduction, Roger. As Roger uh, uh, mentioned, my name is Burl Gooden at UAB. I'm an associate professor, uh, but I'm a clinical psychologist by training. So what I'm really, really interested in understanding and appreciating clinically, and also using my research program to inform, is the lived experience of individuals with chronic pain, particularly low back pain. So I really want to focus on that facet of uh, uh, pain science and, and its clinical utility today for the next you know, 45 minutes or so, and speak with you a little bit about... Uh, what I've come to learn and appreciate just anecdotally in my clinical work, but also empirically through my research as uh, uh, sort of capturing the the lived experience of folks with chronic low back pain. So here is my customary disclosure slide, and I don't have any conflicts. Um, I'm going to blow right past this learning objectives and come back to it, because I'm afraid if I focus on it too much, it'll steal some of the thunder of what I want to get at in the next slide. Okay, All that to say, stay tuned, I'll come back to it. But uh, what you see here is actually a a snippet. It's the first of a series of recent uh, um, papers that was published in The Lancet earlier um, this year, uh, in the spring. And uh, I encourage you, if you're interested in low back pain, to look it up. Um, Very nice series of articles. There's two sort of written by a consensus expert panel, and then another sort of perspective piece Uh, but really talking about sort of the current landscape of chronic low back pain uh, worldwide, and then also some of the more contemporary thinking about what we should be doing to treat it and uh, deal with it. So this slide draws heavily from that first uh, paper here, as you can see, uh, only to say that low back pain is extremely common worldwide, so that may not be uh, new to anybody, Um, but it doesn't necessarily seem to discriminate across uh, the lifespan. So for anybody out there who's thinking that low back pain is something that uh, starts to really impact you as you get older, there may be some truth to that, but actually, uh, too, uh, pediatric populations and and emerging adults actually experience a lot of low back pain. Uh, Global point prevalence is 7.3% in 2015. And I think when you just throw a percentage out there like that, like 7.3 doesn't sound like a lot, right? But when you think about the billions of people in the world, basically that means that around 540 million people are affected with low back pain at any time. It's a lot of people. Basically then what I say about that is that there's a good likelihood that some folks out here in the audience today are experiencing their own low back pain, unfortunately, or even if they're not, they know somebody directly who is. With that type of number, it's just that prevalent. Excuse me. Um, most episodes are short-lasting. Oftentimes, it can be the reason why folks go in and see their primary care physician, and maybe with some NSAIDs or just a little bit of increased physical activity, stretching exercises, stuff, it goes away. Unfortunately, there is a significant minority for whom it becomes increasingly chronic and persistent. And those are really the folks that I want to focus on here for the remainder of, uh, of this session. Uh, Interestingly enough, rarely can a specific nociceptive source for the low back pain be identified. So now I want to move on to this next slide. Uh, anytime I do a talk like this, uh, I think that the audience often appreciates a little bit of engagement or something that gets them thinking. So let me orient you to what we have here in this slide. Two different patients, right? And what we're looking at here is the sagittal plane of a lumbar image right? That was done diagnostically. And on the left, as the the terminology implies, right? We've got normal looking healthy discs, right? A good uh, spinal canal that really isn't impeded by anything like osteophytes or what have you, and the nerve roots free of impingement, right? On the right, we've got most all the same things, except when you get down to the level about L5-S1, you can see a large disc herniation. So my question to all of you is, of these two individuals, which one has chronic low back pain? Good pain clinicians, nice, nice, all right. So I'm not gonna pull a fast one over you here. However, so I've I've kind of done this before with non-pain professionals. If you weren't a pain professional, which one do you think individuals might pick? Person on the right, why do you think they're picking that? Because they're honing in on that objective pathology, correct? All right, so this is in when I usually say, all right, so it was a trick. They're both experiencing chronic low back pain, okay? The, the person that was on the left is generally experiencing this nonspecific chronic low back pain, or what we would generally refer to as just medically unexplained low back pain, right? The reason why I feel like it's important to sort of highlight, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, non-specific low back pain is because one, It tends to be the most prevalent type, right? Um, And the thing is, is that associations between actual back pain symptoms and what you might see on a diagnostic image are tenuous at best. Most people, up to 85%, can't actually be given a precise back pain diagnosis as a function of what is or isn't seen on a diagnostic image, right? Even when abnormalities are detected, the clinical relevance isn't clear because some folks actually have herniations or subluxations in the spine or whatever, and they're asymptomatic. So just because you see something on an image doesn't necessarily mean, oh, you know, low back pain, axial, or radicular pain, sciatica. It's not necessarily a one-to-one type thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. However, medically unexplained pain oftentimes can lead to some difficult interactions between patients and providers. All right. Let me highlight this same images but different question which one of these p- individuals do you think is more likely to be flat out told or at least insinuated that the pain's all in your head person on the left right okay how do you wh- psychologist right how do you think that makes that person feel <laughs> right? not good right invalidated discredited okay so now <clears throat> excuse me let me go back to actually to my learning objectives in reviewing the link between pathoanatomical changes or just pathoanatomy in the lumbar spine and the presentation of low back pain, um, anybody that tells you like, you know, this image is really, really good at defining this or shows you images where it's clearly like, here's some pathology, here's some pain, those are generally exceptions to the patient rule, right? Generally, the rule is, non-specific low back pain where you may or may not see anything. And even if you do, it may or may not actually be the pain generator or the culprit, right? So that was the first learning objective, was to highlight that piece. Uh, The second is to introduce this concept of chronic pain stigma, right? If ultimately you as a chronic pain patient feel that the first thing you need to do when you step into my office is convince me of your pain, right? you may have been stigmatized in the past with previous providers or even family members, so forth and so on. So I want to continue to talk a little bit more about that as we move forward. And then last but not least, I just want to present some aspects of a more humanistic approach to patient-provider interactions. And listen, I don't mean to patronize any clinicians in the room, but what I'm talking about is the lost art of rapport. (laughs) All right? So I want to just get back to that a little bit and talk some about how uh, that might be best incorporated in in some of the treatments that are rolled out for folks with low back pain. If we can do all that, I think we've accomplished accomplished something before lunch. All right, so let me move forward now. All right, so we're talking about stigma, right? So um, stigma itself is just shame and disgrace that's associated with a particular circumstance, quality, or personal characteristic to stigmatize somebody as a verb is to basically sort of shun them invalidate or discredit them based upon their that particular characteristic that deviates from the societal norm again in chronic pain we really really want the societal norm to be objective marker of pain right and when people's low back pain doesn't conform to that wish and hope that can cause some problems there in terms of our alliance with that patient because maybe we've been burned in the past and this new patient of mine looks like somebody who's burned me before. So I don't necessarily want to give them the benefit of the doubt or I go in with preconceived notions that actually can be stigmatizing to that individual. Let me just say that we as humans are exquisitely sensitive to how we perceive other people perceiving us, right? So if I'm your patient and I walk in and you say that you want to help me, but your eyes roll a little bit and i feel that like your exhalation was a little bit too long i want to help you (sighs) i'm automatically not feeling the love and we're off on the wrong foot you see what i'm saying don't mean to call you out you just look very engaging okay so stigma can be uh, experienced as a result of various things demographics cultural norms belief systems Politics, we won't necessarily fall down that rabbit hole, but a whole host of things, why individuals can experience stigma, but really what we're focusing on here now is you know, a physical health condition, that low back pain. Uh, as we move forward, I just want you to keep in mind that, that something like low back pain and the stigma that can be associated with it doesn't occur in a vacuum. People can experience multiple stigmas that can compound each other, a little bit of foreshadowing there. All right? But again, stigmatized people are often made to feel ashamed and disgraced and that can lead to ostracism right, from social groups. In this uh, instance, that social group being the healthcare system and their providers. Right? If I'm feeling like, what's the use? I've just got like, sort of turned away by the last couple of providers that I uh, uh, had contact with. I might just say, you know what? I'm going to take care of it myself. And then maybe I go to the street and find ways to self-medicate and a whole host of other things that could go wrong. Right? So again, this is how this idea of chronic pain stigma can really undermine the patient provider uh, dynamic, right? So stigma and potential negative uh, uh, health consequences isn't necessarily something new. I think a lot of what's been done previously has been done in the context of HIV as a highly stigmatized health condition, but it's not the only one. Things like sickle cell, um, stuff like that can actually be really stigmatized too. But uh, going all the way back to 2006, once again, in the Lancet, right? I don't get any royalties or anything from the Lancet. It's just a good journal, and people like to publish their stuff there if they can. But uh, Bruce Link and Joe Fellin were actually talking about um, the stress that can actually be associated with stigma. Right? So if I have chronic pain, there's already my insult. The stigmatization is my insult to injury. Right. And ultimately, the stress that's associated with being stigmatized can compound things and lead to other stress-related ailments. Right but it can also then be uh, uh, sort of especially difficult for those with a disease-associated stigma because it can increase the risk of worsening that disease in and of itself, right? So if I'm stigmatized because of my low back pain, that may make my low back pain worse in and of itself, but also lead to other negative physical and mental health complications. Right. So specifically chronic pain stigma, uh, uh, kind of a newer concept, at least uh, uh, from what I've learned in, in talking about it here recently with folks, but thinking about why might people really be sort of stigmatized for their chronic pain. We've already discussed some of this, right? The first one being that medically unexplained pain. Again, we want the sort of societal norm in our health provision, uh, or in our pain care provision society to be objective markers, one-to-one equating to subjective experiences. But that's not the norm, right? So the medically unexplained pain particularly non-specific low back pain, there's a reason why somebody could be stigmatized. I don't have to tell all of you at this point, too, uh, concerns related to opioid misuse, another reason why a patient can be stigmatized, right? Because are they trying to pull the wool over my eyes and a fast one here with this pain that only they can truly appreciate because I can't necessarily see it on an image, what have you? So are they just trying to score some kick-ass drugs, right? Also, too, Disability status, right? are they just trying to find a way to be able to maybe collect a paycheck, but not go to work, right? All these sorts of things do not give your patient the benefit of the doubt, can totally devalue their lived experience and lead them to feel you know, super, super stigmatized. Uh, this next uh, couple of bullets are actually drawn from some qualitative work that's been done on the topic of chronic pain stigma. So these are individuals with chronic pain talking about sort of how they feel in the context of what they've experienced, right? So again, we're, we're uh, sensitive to how other people perceive us. So individuals with chronic pain have said, you know, I do not feel believed by my friends, family, and healthcare providers because of my pain, right? Um, they believe that providers are less inclined to help or empathize, right? More likely to suspect deception, dislike that person more, um, particularly when the pain is medically unexplained. And in the context of the work environment, right? More likely to perceive hostility from coworkers, you know. Let's say you're on light duty, and your coworker's like, "You look fine to me, so why do I have to pick up the slack on your work?" Right? All right. Um, so, kind of again related to this topic, former uh, president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine Dan Carr uh, published a paper not too long ago talking about how you know recognizing this issue of pain stigma, right? And in this publication, what he pointed out was, you know, 2011, you folks might be familiar with the Institute of Medicine's blueprint for uh, uh, managing chronic pain or relieving pain in America. Part of what that expert panel of folks did was reached out to over 2,000 people with chronic pain and solicited testimonials. And what you can see here are a few of those testimonials directly speaking to experiences of stigmatization. Now granted, this isn't just low back pain specific, but you sort of pick up what I'm putting down here, hopefully, right? So it's been hell. First, you have to find somebody that believes you, okay? Doctors don't recognize pain. They cannot see or diagnose it as a specific issue. And the stigma is one of the biggest barriers. I've been treated like a lowlife by medical people when I disclose that I have chronic pain and use opioids for it, all right? So, again, just more information. there, sort of highlighting individuals' unfortunate lived experiences sometimes when they're dealing with chronic pain, chronic low back pain, VOD, all right? So, (coughs) excuse me. There hasn't necessarily been work yet that has really kind of bore out these different dimensions of chronic pain stigma, but I sort of sampled this from stuff that's previously been done actually in the context of HIV, right? And these domains make sense to me. If you think about it, oftentimes what happens is that people will experience some sort of enacted stigma perpetrated against them, right? So, for example, people have patronized me or treated me like a child because of my pain, right, or they take me less seriously. So what then happens is they start to anticipate that from others as they move forward, right? So nobody would be interested in getting close to me because I have pain, or they think I can't achieve much in life. The sort of stages model of self-stigma suggests that when people experience that pain, or excuse me, experience that stigma, start to anticipate it, it really becomes problematic if they internalize it, right? And when they internalize it, they start to feel inferior. Or they may start to think, perhaps I am crazy. am, Am I making all this up? And I've had patients ask me that before, like, I don't know, do you think I'm making all this up? I'm starting to think I am, right? So when they start to internalize it, that's when it can really take a toll on mental wellness, right? So, again, this is what I'm, um, well... I think Roger spoke a little bit about this with risk and resiliency factors. So experiencing stigma would likely be a risk factor, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody experiences it is going to have, you know, the fast-tracked negative health outcomes, you know, particularly as it relates to their pain. Some people are particularly resilient, right? So if, uh, uh, if a person inherently has the sort of disposition where you make me feel like less of a person because of my chronic pain, but I think you're an idiot, it's not me, it's you. I'm not internalizing that, and I feel a little bit better, right? But over time, though, any sort of armor can be chipped away, okay? So oftentimes then, you know, whether it's right away or over time, people do start to internalize this stigma. It can be a problem, all right? So what does the research suggest? Let me just say first and foremost, this idea of um, stigma in the context of nonspecific low back pain outcomes really hasn't been addressed. Um, we've just started doing some of this in a new study of ours, and I've got some, some very fresh data that I'm going to present to you here shortly, but there isn't a whole lot that's been done. Some of what has been done is just shown that, that individuals who report experiencing a high degree of chronic pain stigma have also turned up with decreased uh, uh, self-esteem, right? fast track to depression, negative mental health outcomes, decreased pain self- self-efficacy, Right? So let me just explain that real quick. If they have decreased pain self-efficacy, then there's less confidence in their ability to obtain a positive outcome. Right? If chronic pain is a condition of self-management, and people who are stigmatized have low pain self-efficacy, do you think they're highly motivated to manage their own pain? No, right? Okay, and then increased pain catastrophizing, and, and uh, you know, catastrophizing is a very potent psychological and cognitive sort of risk factor for worse outcomes when you're magnifying the pain and, and feeling helpless to deal with it. All right, Here's a little bit of indirect evidence. Let's, uh, let's just play make-believe for a second. So if I have nonspecific low back pain, I'm stigmatized, right? And then because of that, I'm feeling sort of devalued or excluded would you agree that that's basically me being rejected? I'm sort of rejected for my experience because I can't get you to believe it. right? And if that's the case, what ends up happening here, Naomi Eisenberger out of uh, UCLA has done a lot of this work, basically trying to show that when we make this sort of dichotomy of social pain, the pain of rejection, versus physical pain, like maybe a heat stimulus or something, A lot of uh, the the neural networks that pop up in the brain are the same ones, right? So this idea of like a social pain versus a physical pain seems to be a little bit of an arbitrary dichotomy that we as people have made because our our basic brain doesn't necessarily differentiate it that way. It just knows what hurts, right? And if my back hurts and your rejection of me also hurts, then I'm hurting more, okay? All right, so... um, Was anybody here for Dr. Philengem's talk this morning? Okay, a few people. So I was one of the first people to get my CRAP certificate through his clinical research uh, uh, acronym program, hence the ERASE study. If you weren't here this morning, that's an inside joke for the rest of us then, so (laughs) sorry, sorry about that. But this is my ERASE study, right, which is examining racial and socioeconomic disparities in low back pain, so ERASE low back pain. And uh, what I'm just showing you here is we've collected our first 44 individuals, you got about a middle-aged sample, but you can see it ranges from young to you know old. A um, little bit more female than male at this point, but we'll see how that plays out. Low back pain tends to be a little bit more prevalent in women than men anyways. Um, pretty comparable in terms of uh, racial background with uh, black and white individuals, as well as individuals living above and below the poverty line. And again, that was intentional, given that we are trying to look at racial and socioeconomic differences. But really what I just want to show you is that on average, from zero to ten, they are about a six in their pain severity, fairly moderate or severe. I mean, who am I to say? It's their experience. Um, pain interference uh, is you know, somewhat highly impactful, but for some people, even though they have pain, they're rating, their interference is zero. That means these individuals are going about their day normally. But for some people, it's highly, highly uh, uh, limiting. Um, CESD is a depression measure, right? so for some folks, again, you can see that variability in the range, a little bit of depression versus a lot. At the bottom is the chronic pain stigma measure, and that varies from uh, zero to four. So for the most part, most individuals are rating some type of experience stigma, some individuals quite a lot. And then last but not least, this idea of injustice perception. Anybody familiar with this concept of perceived injustice, pain-related injustice? Okay, so some yes, some no, so I'll uh, elaborate just a little bit. We've been really interested to the extent that individuals being stigmatized makes them feel as if their pain is even more unfair and unjust because nobody really asks for a chronic low back pain condition, right? It just sort of happens, right? And that can seem quite unfair. So pain-related injustice perceptions reflect kind of people's beliefs and feelings related to the severity of their loss. Most people don't understand how severe my condition is. Right? You can see how that kind of overlaps with this idea of being stigmatized and devalued. Blame and anger, because I'm suffering, because people don't take my pain seriously and won't help me. Uh, unfairness. Again, I didn't do anything to deserve this, and I didn't ask for it. My life will never be the same. That almost becomes an existential issue. Like, what am I supposed to be doing with my life now? All right? And what's kind of been shown here as of late is this Perceived injustice really does kind of serve as a cognitive appraisal risk factor for worse chronic pain outcomes. So if you had to guess, what would you think the relationship looks like between people who report a lot of stigma and whether or not they see their pain to be particularly unjust? Probably kind of a strong correlation there, right? And just with 44 people, that's exactly what we're seeing, somewhere on the lines of almost like 60% shared variance. (coughs) Excuse me. So, you know... Kind of hoping this isn't just a redundant construct and I'm like measuring the same thing. I don't think it is, at least theoretically and how I conceptualize it seems uh, different. But those individuals who are reporting a lot of stigma, right? And again, this is low back pain stigma, um, excuse me, whether or not it's uh, uh, experienced from healthcare providers, family and friends, you know, loved ones. But those individuals who are experiencing more of that stigma are also seeing their pain as extremely unjust. And again, if that injustice is a risk factor for negative pain outcomes, then this little model here really, really underscores that. Because essentially what we have here on the left is greater chronic pain stigma related to more injustice perception. In turn, more injustice perception related to higher severity of their chronic low back pain. And even with 44 individuals, this model remains statistically significant when we covary out whether or not they were depressed to begin with. So that's a pretty strong model already with 44 people. Um, to see it remain significant like this suggests that the effects meaning you know, the overlap between these uh, constructs very, very strong. OK, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit. You know I've mentioned HIV, and that was a little bit of foreshadowing, um, because, like I said, um, something like chronic pain stigma doesn't just occur in a vacuum. Right? People can actually experience multiple types of stigma, right? Looking at chronic pain, particularly low back pain and HIV, gives you an opportunity to sort of look at multiply stigmatized health conditions. What a lot of people don't know is that chronic pain is a huge issue for people with HIV. Um, What I think people traditionally expect or think about is like neuropathic pain related to HIV or perhaps some of the medications that are used to treat it. But actually there's been really, really nice strides in the progression of antiretroviral therapy that's very nerve sparing and actually has much less severe uh, side effect profiles. So when we continue to see all of this chronic pain and these individuals present to their HIV primary care, it actually isn't neuropathic pain that's driving the bus. It's musculoskeletal pain, particularly chronic low back pain. And then somewhere after that comes neuropathic pain. Uh, these individuals often are dealing with multiple types. Uh, Chris Myaskowski, a few years back out in San Francisco, did a study in this population and found that the median number of pain locations was five. Right? So there was a lot of low back pain, and then also a lot of knee pain, hip pain, head pain, and foot pain. Okay. Um, Chronic pain prevalence, somewhere between 30 and 85. I know that's a pretty disparate number. That often relates to how well engaged the uh, patient with HIV is in care. If they're better retained and a little bit more managed, less prevalent chronic pain, but if not, then more. But either way, if you take this to be sort of accurate, what it really suggests is that chronic pain is more prevalent in this population than it is in non-HIV populations, because generally that epidemiological stuff, uh, research in non-HIV populations puts kind of chronic pain prevalence, maybe around upper teens to 20. So HIV and chronic pain kind of catches people off guard. But it does provide an opportunity to look at this idea of intersectional stigma, which basically posits that individuals may experience compounding stigmas resulting from the dynamic interaction of multiple marginalized identities. Okay, So this is our CHIPS study. And right, again, with the acronyms right or comprehensive HIV and pain study, and we collected sixty individuals with uh, HIV and a bona fide chronic pain condition, and you can just kind of go through here and, uh, and particularly point out um, on the bottom left, you can see that their depression scores twenty four point four, actually quite higher than the low back pain folks I just showed you. that was about sixteen point five, right even though their pain severity is right there, like six, comparable to the low back pain people so with that sort of increased average amount of depression, we were wondering to what extent does an intersectional stigma that people might experience relate to, that, uh, to uh, experiences of depression? I'll get there in a second. What this uh, pie graph really shows is that back pain was driving the bus for these folks with chronic, uh, chronic pain. Um, next was hip and knee pain, and when we actually explored that a little bit more, uh, that tended to be radiating pain like sciatica and things that actually could be tied back to a low back issue. So, spine pain, particularly low back pain, really prominent in these uh, folks with HIV. So, this is one of those like multiple regression tables, and I apologize for all the numbers and what have you. Just follow the arrows, because essentially what that shows is that when we take into account things like demographics, right? Gender, race, age, some HIV specific stuff then their pain severity and interference, and on top of that, look to see to what extent were their experiences of stigma related to their depressive symptoms. It says, that when we put the two different types of stigma in there, HIV and chronic pain, we accounted for a large chunk of variance. And if you look, really the chronic pain stigma is more strongly related to their experiences of depression than is their HIV stigma. So that kind of speaks to the fact that chronic pain stigma is a salient issue. Now, this doesn't necessarily capture the interactional or intersectional dynamic of these two stigmas. So we actually went about analyzing it in a different way. And what we did was we just took a median split on their HIV stigma and a median split on their chronic pain stigma. Okay. And if you were high on both, then that's high intersectional stigma. If you were low on both, all right, then that's low. If you were high on one but low on the other, we just called that moderate. All right. So I appreciate that this (laughs) isn't beyond reproach, but just go with me here, right? So the thought being is that if you look at depressive symptoms across low, moderate, and high levels of intersectional stigma, you might sort of see this additive or staircase effect. And indeed, that's exactly what you get, right? So the more stigma that people are experiencing, the bigger toll it appears to be taking on their mental health, particularly if you conceptualize that as a function of mood and, and depression. And that intersectional stigma was actually more strongly related to the depressive symptoms than their pain severity was. I throw this in here as a case example because this is one of our uh, patients that came through the study. So this was a 52-year-old black transgender woman, male to female, who was living well below the poverty line. You can see the HIV and chronic pain status there, but also uh, with a, uh, a documented record of alcohol and substance abuse depression and anxiety. the reason why I put that up there and kind of highlight that is all we did was measure HIV and chronic pain stigma. But do you see a few other things that could potentially be stigmatized as well? So we may have only really kind of hit the tip of the iceberg as far as like the compounding nature of all the ways that people can be discredited and devalued for what they bring to the table and how that may impact their physical and mental health outcomes. Okay, so a few further considerations uh, uh, when thinking about stigma as it relates to kind of chronic pain, right? A real problem, we need to better understand the sources of stigma, right? So you may be uh, thinking I'm standing up here sort of lambasting healthcare providers as the sole source of people's stigmatizing experiences, and I'm not trying to do that at all. I mean, uh, just anecdotally, a lot of my patients will say, you know, it's really hard for me to talk about this with my spouse because they're starting to question whether or not there's any validity to my experiences, right? So the sources of stigma, may be important for then uh, uh, informing whether or not there's going to be interventions that can counteract stigma's effects or at least prevent stigma fr- stigmatizing behaviors from manifesting, right? So that speaks to the patient. You know, how do we perhaps build up resilience so they don't necessarily internalize the stigma as readily as they might? But also, <clears throat> and this is something that you know, I will just put on healthcare providers, how can we become more aware and be a little bit more savvy of whether or not we are actually interacting with people, consciously, hope not, subconsciously perhaps, with a bias that promotes stigma towards them. All right? <clears throat> excuse me. And I think the crux of that is just education. And some of that education may very well start with de-emphasizing the need for there to be an objective marker of the person's pain. All right? it's just the, the evidence isn't there. And what it does is it just undermines and sort of discredits the subjective experience of the patient as not as important, right? I can only, like, feel good about your subjective experience if there's an objective counterpart to it that helps me, as your provider, feel better about what I'm doing. How is that the patient's problem? All right, so this was uh, moving on a little bit more to, like, treatment-related things and just interactions as providers. Um, I need to hurry up. Uh, this was the second uh, article published in the Lancet, right? Just talking about really the need to reduce the focus on spinal abnormalities as it relates to low back pain, right? Um, educate, education and treatment that supports self management of low back pain, really, the frontline sort of stuff that they're promoting is psychological approaches and physical therapy. Saying that really now, in light of the whole opioid misuse issue and so forth and so on, is the tip of the spear for treating low back pain, right? And then after that, more prudent and conservative use of medications, imaging, spinal injection, surgery. And this isn't me just saying that this is what needs to happen. This is this expert consensus panel putting these uh, sort of recommendations out there for healthcare provider consumption, all right? So a humanistic approach to patient care. Again, the lost art of bedside manner, therapeutic alliance, rapport. I don't mean to be patronizing, but the fact of the matter is, is suffice it to say you guys are all chronic pain experts but none of you are an expert on your patient's lived experience, right? The only way you can become that is to actually stop for a second, listen, okay? There's actually been some, uh, some research out there showing that it takes most healthcare providers uh, on average about 20 seconds before they interrupt their patient. After they ask the patient, tell me what's going on. And okay, so this is what I think, right? And uh, I don't know, I mean, do you like when people like interrupt and as soon as you get asked? Okay, that's great. So, uh, my point right so it can really emphasize the need to just stop for a second and try to relate I mentioned that it can be somewhat existential right see a lot of these patients that are grieving who are they grieving for them of yesteryear before the pain became an issue right because they're grieving all the things that they have lost now they don't necessarily who they are or what their life is of value now that it has chronic pain and you may need to help them a little bit with that Remind them that, you know, you, have, you may not be a, a bank teller anymore, but you're still a, a mom, right? Or you're still a, a source of support yourself, and there's value in that, right? Helping the patient to stay focused on the here and now, right? So much issue uh, related to future catastrophizing of what next year is going to bring. I don't know what next year is going to bring. Tomorrow could bring a big bust that knocks you out and takes care of your chronic pain right then and there. Nobody knows, right? All we're promised is what we have right now. So the importance of staying focused for uh, appropriate pain self-management. I used to think that like people needed to earn their trophies and their praise, right? But oftentimes now when I see my patients and they're coming through and like, they actually like, much to their own dismay or as much as they didn't want to, made it a point to still come in for their appointment. That's actually a big deal, right? You might think, well, that's just what you needed to do in order to get here to let the healing begin. They didn't have to, they chose to. So just saying, like, I acknowledge, I see that you're here right now, and that lets me know that you care and that you want to put some skin in the game. Let's collaborate and do this, right? Don't be afraid to cheerlead them, all right? Um, So because I'm running out of time, basically this uh, study here by Tor Wager and his group out of Colorado was basically shown in, in some clinical simulations those patients that were simulated to be hooked up with a provider that they felt was more similar to them and shared their beliefs, were more trusted, actually would relate their pain to a heat stimulus as much lower when they felt that like the provider that they were matched up with wasn't similar to them and didn't actually like share their values and beliefs. And so it actually sort of speaks to that idea of aligning yourself with your patient. Now, I'm not necessarily saying Democrat versus you know, Republican or whatever, but you know the fact that you guys can actually be similar in that you both want to help remediate and alleviate as much pain as possible—that's an important similarity, right? And that's uh, kind of the uh, the hotbed of of collaboration there. All right, so listen to what patients have to say. Don't make assumptions. Sometimes you're seeing that tenth patient of the day, and that patient looks really, really similar to the ninth patient. So let me just, you know, quickly just assume that this is what you mean and move on. That can be rough. All right always explain what's happening right if you give a patient like some written materials or whatever anybody have an idea of like what grade level that should be written at at least fifth fifth four i mean as low as you can possibly get it but at least like fifth to sixth oftentimes that doesn't happen i'm guilty of that too right i'll run something through the little uh, uh estimator of reading equivalent and it's like you know phd level i'm like ah shit. Yeah. you know but keep it simple right? Try to understand the patient's perspective and validate their experience. Again, their subjective experience is truly important for informing what's going on there, right? And I want you to give the patient the benefit of the doubt. Right? It may be that, again, this 10th patient looked really, really similar to your ninth, and your ninth one just burnt you because that medication you were giving them is being diverted. And you're thinking, this 10th patient, they look like they're gonna do it to me too. So no, 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 we're not even gonna go down that route of talking about medications, right? It's unfair, right? Each patient deserves their own opportunity to burn you, as rough as that sounds, right? Each patient deserves their own opportunity to burn you. Right? And that's tough as a provider, right? Because you're trying to do right and trying to practice ethically, so forth and so on, but the essence of what I'm saying is you gotta give that patient the benefit of the doubt because they may surprise you, right? I'm going to kind of go th- quickly through here so we can wrap up on time, but this is just, you know, my bread and butter when it comes to treating patients with chronic low back pain or any pain for that matter, just cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So just a large emphasis on how people think, right, impacting then how they feel and what they do, right? So if you change how a person thinks, right, you can change how they act. So it's a lot of cognitive restructuring, so I spent a lot of time. All how I was just describing, you know, trying not to catastrophize as much, trying to accept that chronic pain may be a part of your reality until you die. All right, so if we can just accept that now, how can we get on to the business of living? right, again, it can be a tough pill to swallow. Having a nice therapeutic alliance makes it a little easier to go down. All right, so again, three basic components, education. A lot of times the patients want to find some sort of objective marker for their pain whether or not they learn that from their healthcare providers or pop culture or whatever, that that sort of needs to be de-emphasized. This idea that we have something called like failed back pain, uh, excuse me, failed back surgery syndrome, that's nuts, you know? And that just speaks to the fact that a lot of times, you know, patients aren't necessarily hesitant to go under the knife four or five different times because somebody told them like, maybe this is it, right? All right, a lot of coping skills training. Listen, even when your patients are using too much medication or washing it down with alcohol or what have you. All they're trying to do is cope. It may be maladaptive, it may not necessarily be helpful, but all they're trying to do is cope. All right? Think about it like that, and then you might be able to think, well, how can we replace some of those bad coping habits with good ones? Right? They're just trying to do the best they can. Okay? Um, so here's some of the educational topics. Like I said, I'm going to move through uh, that. But, like, gate control theory, just the differences between acute and chronic pain. Um, deconditioning and activity rest a lot of times people do the the boom and bust oh I'm having a good day boom 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 oh I'm having a crappy next three days but I'm thinking about everything I'm uh, uh, you know falling behind on so I feel good boom and bust all right need to learn more about activity pacing again just skills training and development relaxation um, things related to you know deep breathing uh, but just pain coping strategies, nice ways to distract yourself with pleasant, pleasant activities, uh, coping self-statements, accessing social support, and doing it appropriately. That's a big one, right? And then just identifying and challenging those maladaptive thoughts. Excuse me. Other uh, sort of uh, factors that have actually been shown to be related to the onset of low back pain, like poor diet and lack of exercise, poor sleep. Some of this stuff needs to be corrected, because in the context of chronic low back pain that's already developed, it can really exacerbate those symptoms. So a lot of times the cognitive behavioral therapy stuff will focus on this, right? So a lot of this stuff gets practiced in session, but what I tell people, again, chronic pain being this condition of self-management is you may see me one time for a week, that's one hour, right? And then, I don't know, I'd have to do some multiplicative math in my head, but there's many more hours in a week beyond just that one where you're sort of on the hook you got to try to take care of this stuff yourself, you know? Again, I'm not trying to give you a fish. I'm trying to teach you how to fish. Get a little biblical there on you. All right? Um, so last but not least, I'll leave it with this. If, uh, if this expert panel of folks who are publishing stuff on low back pain in the Lancet are really saying that the tip of the spear needs to be things like psychological approaches and uh, uh, physical therapy, right, is it time to really rethink how we roll that out? And now i'm really thinking about psychological approaches right because my psychology practice is in the context of tertiary pain care so let's say you saw your primary care and then you saw your orthopedist and then you saw whomever and you've experienced some stigma and you know i told you like i really do want to help you you should probably go see the psychologist right that may very well be an appropriate referral but when it's coming at a long line of like you know, kind of building up hope and getting your legs kicked out from underneath you, some stigma. By the time, like, people would come to see me, they're re- I mean, it undermines like, everything that we're trying to do because they're like, what are you going to tell me? Yeah, am I really crazy? Bugger off. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm already starting at a disadvantage there. So, if most people who are experiencing, let's say, an acute bout of chronic pain, or excuse me, an acute bout of low back pain, go to their primary care physician, does it not make sense to maybe try to start rolling out some of these psychological and physical therapy practices on the front end, right at the point of contact? But for whatever reason, and again, we won't digress into this because we've got to go to lunch, it doesn't work that way. Again, psychological uh, uh, approaches aren't necessarily terribly lucrative, right? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, so there's that. Uh, right, again, just a whole host of reasons why it's maybe not necessarily rolled out on the front end. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I totally believe it, you know, because again, uh, the patients aren't terribly different from us as providers where they think like, no, 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 the psychologist isn't going to tell me what is actually wrong with me, right? They experience the pain as a symptom of something else that ails them, not necessarily something that can be its own clinical disease entity unto itself, right? Um, you know... Uh, I don't have any kids, but when your kids resist bedtime, do you just let them stay up as late as they want? No, No, you may need to kind of roll with it, right? And keep on working. So again, I mean, I appreciate your efforts there, but I appreciate that nothing, you know, if we change something where like psychological approaches come on the back end currently, but we want to try to roll them out more on the front end, anytime you try to switch something up like that, there's always resistance. So trying to find ways to roll with the resistance and still try to you know, meet comparable ends between patient and provider, it's a fight worth fighting, I think. All right, and I believe uh, that's it. I acknowledge all these great people because they helped me to stand up here before you today. Thank you all for listening. I will not be upset if you roll on out to go eat. If you have any questions, I'll. Stay-